Okay. So, good evening, everyone. It's great to be back again. Uh, I said last time, if you were here last time, that, so obviously this is all one series in terms of looking at eschatology, looking at the big picture of the Bible. But these kind of, last, last time, this one and the next one kind of are very interlinked. There's like a, a, a grain that goes through. So we looked at the kingdom of God last time and how it was established. And we looked at Daniel 2 and those kind of things. And I, and I very much feel as though this session is that session's brother and next session is this session's brother. So there's three brothers. And uh, so I, I kind of feel like tonight is going to leave some loose threads on purpose for next time to pick up. But uh, so hopefully we'll all see the interrelation. Uh, so I think this is definitely some some themes kind of repeating. But yes, uh, there's a, I think there's a lot of things tonight which are callbacks because what we're doing, as I said kind of before, we're gently piece by piece building a big picture, so that you know one of the things I hate in theology is when someone say like, oh, what's your view on this? And you can answer it in a word, you know, like. Uh, Oh, what's your view on the end times? I'm a millennial. And I think there's a problem there if we can distill a whole Bible's worth of teaching to a word. And I understand that words are useful, and I'm, I'm not trying to say that we should never try and make language efficient. I just think there's a very rich tapestry to the picture of the end times in the Bible. Um, and so tonight we're calling back to things that we looked at in the past, um, and I'll try and remind you of those as we go through. But we're looking at the concept tonight of uh, Israel's uh, judgment curse, whatever you want to call it, their scattering and their restoration that's prophesied. And we could literally read hundreds of passages in the Bible, especially in the prophets, in the major prophets and in the minor prophets, uh, about this topic. I have tried to keep it to about five major passages which are of particular note, but there is so much to go on. So we're, we're covering, I think there's going to be a lot of Bible tonight, and I'm hoping that I've kept the material light enough that we can spend a lot of time just reading the text, because obviously that is the best way to do theology. Um, so uh, we're looking at Israel, dead, buried, and alive again. So let's jump in on that. So on your handout, is, is, has everyone got a handout? Is anyone lacking a handout? Everyone's got one. Great. Okay. Um, we have a map there of the United Kingdom, oh, sorry, of the divided kingdom, um, Kingdom of Israel, Kingdom of Judah. So, well, let's see if anyone's a, a real Bible nerd. So, under, under which kings did the United Monarchy divide? Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Which one was the son of Solomon? Which one was the imposter? was the one of the yeah that, that is true you are right there Jono it was one of them so, Jeroboam was yes Rehoboam was the son of Solomon so so Rehoboam maintained the kingdom of Judah Jeroboam took the kingdom of Israel how many of the tribes of Israel Israel were, were how many of the tribes of Israel were represented in the kingdom of Judah pardon uh, I, two in a bit is right to the extent that some people lingered. Uh, they were the bit. They were the trace. But so there's there's definitely the tribe of Judah. So at least one, and it seems like the tribe of Benjamin stuck around as well, which meant that the Northern Kingdom got the rest of the tribes. Um, so it often gets called the Kingdom of the Ten Tribes, but there's a problem with that in that the tribe of Dan didn't exist by that point. So, yeah. Uh, yes. So Manasseh and Ephraim. Look at me going off on my first digression. Anyway, thank you, Jono. Um, so uh, what happened to the, the kingdom of Israel? So Israel dead and buried. What happened? How did they die, so to speak? So there we go. have the two maps. So they were destroyed by Assyria. Does anyone know the date? In 722 BC, so Syria came to Israel and uh, it laid siege and scattered them. 
The problem with Assyria when they take into exile is it's not like, well, I'm not about to give away the answers actually, the next people who destroyed Judah who maintained them in exile and kind of they are distinct and stuff. Uh, when they went into Assyria, we don't know where they ended up, so we, we call them the lost tribes of Israel because I mean, even, even early Jews just talk about the tribes that are scattered beyond the sea because they don't know where you can go to find these tribes. So that they, they get exiled and, and are lost. Um, then we have the southern kingdom, which was destroyed by Babylon. In this, well, this is kind of a trick question. Does anyone know when it was destroyed? When they were exiled? I say it's a trick question. Probably 586, but it's a trick question because there's a kind of a 50% split in scholarship over whether or not it was 587 or 586. It's all to do with how you uh, understand, interpret the chronologies in the Bible. But, yeah, so we end up with, by this period, so less than 500 years after King David, kind of the pinnacle of Israel, uh, with Israel no longer being in the promised land. All, All the tribes are now scattered and taken away. And so we seem to have lost something substantial. Now, the, the question on the handout there, and I think it's one we're thinking about, we, we looked at a few weeks ago, I think it was session three, we looked at the Mosaic Covenant, the law, and we asked what's the eschatology in the law, what, what are the options, and we saw there were two options. The Mosaic Law says, if you obey, if you're faithful, if you keep the covenant, then you will be like this, you will... Uh, be the head, not the tail. You will uh, lead the nations. You will, uh, the Lord will bless you and make you pl- plentiful. If you don't keep the law, if you're not faithful to the covenant, then uh, then what will happen? Yeah, you'll be scattered amongst the nations. Uh, you'll be sent away. Uh, you will be the tail and not the head. Just all the opposite things, really. So we, we're kind of seeing the, the story of the Mosaic Law has two storylines that could happen. These are the two things that Moses offers to Israel. You can go this way or you can go this way. And what did happen was they went that way. But if anyone has a Bible, well, I, I say if anyone, I hope everyone does, um, could, could we turn to Deuteronomy 32? This is known as the Song of Moses. Um, so this, this is kind of Moses prophesying the story of what's going to happen to Israel. And, and if, we just, uh, if we just start maybe from verse 15, could someone just read out in a loud voice Deuteronomy, 13, uh, sorry, Deuteronomy 32, verses um, 15 to, um, to verses, let's see... Let's just go for the sake of it to verse... 23, 15 to 23. Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. We could go on. Um, it, it's essentially just, yeah, the Lord saying that they are going to turn, they're going to reject, they're going to worship false gods, and, and the Lord is going to destroy them. But then, so the reason I've stopped there is just because it is much the same for the next few verses, the Lord is going to destroy them. But then there's a switch that happens in verse 36. And we're not going to read all of it, but just to say that the end of the song does not end on a note of judgment, but it's, it turns to the Lord then vindicating his people, to restoring them, to bringing them back to himself. Um, and then more than just his people. So in verse 43, if you look, rejoice you nations with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies and will make atonement for his land and his people. That's the ending of the song. So Moses is prophesying Israel are going to reject, they are going to turn from God, they are going to be scattered, they are going to be sent among the nations, but their turning back to God isn't just good news for them, it's good news for the nations. So, so this is a, a song that kind of is sung at the establishment of Israel. So when we see Israel dead and buried in this sense, they're all scattered. It's almost like um, Deuteronomy 32, Moses' song is like a timeline for us. We can kind of go, okay, where are we at the timeline? And at this point, they're in the not so good bit. 
but we know that the, the other bit is going to come later. He's going to vindicate his people. Um, he's he's going to deal with their false gods, and then he's going to bring them back to life. Um, so if you look at verse, sorry, before we move on from Deuteronomy 32, too quickly, verse 39. See now that I myself am he, there is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal, and none can deliver out of my hand. It's the Lord is going to put his own people to death, but he's going to bring them back to life. So, this is kind of where we're starting with. Israel, dead, destroyed, under God's judgment, scattered amongst the nations. But God is going to restore Israel again. It's interesting that every time the Lord gives a judgment oracle, he always follows it by a restoration oracle. You read the uh, book of Hosea recently? I mean, the first chapter is just, it, it, it's it's quite hard reading really because it's just so strong the language as God talks about how he is rejecting his people I don't want you anymore you're not my people don't call me your God because you're not my people but then even that chapter ends by saying but I'm going to restore you to myself and the ones who I said are not my children I will call children of the living God so it it always we always know that God is going to restore Uh, okay we're going to do a little necessary excursus here because if we don't do this excursus it leads you onto all sorts of strange, funny grounds in the realm of interpretation, especially when you get to the New Testament. And so it's very important. When we say that God is going to restore Israel, we need to know what we mean by that. And this is not helped by the modern state of Israel being called Israel, right? Because how many tribes are there in Israel? Twelve. When we're talking about modern Israel, who are we talking about? Jews. So Jew is a corruption of the word Judahite. So if you're a Judahite, you're from the tribe of... And so at the very most, you represent a twelfth of Israel. So there is a reason why the tribe... that Judah never referred to themselves as Israel. In fact, the only time in antiquity that they did refer to themselves as Israel was in 135 AD when there was a restoration movement led by a false messiah called Simon bar Akbar who believed that in him Israel was being restored, and so they called themselves Israel. So we've got a little thing here. Often, when we think we're talking about the Jews, we think we're talking about Israel and vice versa, as though these are separate terms, okay? It's really important that we understand that to be a Jew is a a subcategory of Israel. And it's amazing how often this, this distinction is missed. So I was reading a book uh, recently by a scholar who I really like, and he was talking about the book of Acts, and he was saying how the book of Acts shows the the trajectory from uh, Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, how you go from Jews to half-Jews to Gentiles. Uh, Samaritans are not half-Jews. They've never been connected to the tribe of Judah. They are Israelites, but they're not Jews. When Paul in Romans 11 says all Israel is going to be saved, it's amazing how many commentators think that means the Jews are going to be converted. The Jews aren't all Israel. All Israel is all Israel. Jews are one-twelfth of that. So, and I say this because it's so commonly missed. So, uh, uh, this happened uh, in the 20th century when the nation was reestablished in, you know, tribe of Israel, people, uh, sorry, the nation of Israel, people saying this is the fulfillment of prophecy. There is not a single prophecy that says that just one tribe is going to be restored. So it's really important that we understand that. And actually, this book, the idea of Israel in Second Temple Judaism, I'm going to recommend this again later. This book is fantastic. Very, very good at just showing how this is a very, very modern construct. This is a very kind of modern way of thinking about uh, Israel and the Jews, and not a single Jew in history would have said that the Jews are Israel. So I, I say it's a necessary excursus because when we look at the restoration, notice how they never think of it. The prophets never say, when you end up back in Judah, that's it, job done. Okay? Okay, so little excursus aside. Everyone feel like we've got that so far? Okay. Israel alive again. So they've been dead, been buried in that sense. Now it's time to come back to life. Okay. Which prophet speaks to the exiles and tells them that there is a time coming when the exile will end? Does anyone know? Jeremiah. What is the most famous Bible verse that you see on Christian bookmarks and, and in photo frames? And 
Yes. So it's, a, it's amazing how often we quote Jeremiah 29.11 and don't quote Jeremiah 29.10. Uh, could someone read Jeremiah 29.10? There we go. Yeah, people never include that. So, um, so Jeremiah speaks to the people there and he says, hey guys, this is not forever. There is going to be an end. There are 70 years that God has allowed for this to, to happen, but uh, you are going to return to the land. Now bear in mind, it's only Judah in, in Babylon. So he's only, he's only saying to them, hey, you guys are going back. Um, so there's going to be a 70-year period leading to Judah's restoration. And the, the people of Judah do begin to return to Jerusalem in 539. So the king of Persia, does anyone know the king of Persia's name? He's, he's a bit later. Cyrus. Cyrus the Great. So uh, I, I actually, I think, I might be wrong about this, I think there is a copy of uh, the cylinder with his uh, announcement on that sends the, the Jews back to their homeland in the United Nations headquarters because it's considered to be like the first draft of human rights because he basically says, hey, you guys have got the right to return to your home to, to build up your houses and stuff. Uh, yeah, Cyrus the Great's decree, um, which is uh, in Second Chronicles, so it's very cool. Uh, who would have thunk it? The Bible uh, established human rights. Anyway, so they start to return. But if you read those narratives, you read Ezra, you read Nehemiah, you read Zechariah, Haggai, all those books, very, very quickly, the people who return are saying, is, is this it? Like, is this the restoration that was promised to us? As, you know, the book of Nehemiah, for instance, it witnesses an amazing... Uh, activity of God's people it witnesses some really amazing stuff but it's pretty depressing when you consider what their expectations are yeah it's like if you if you think you're going uh, on a on a private jet and you end up going on a little um I don't know 737 it's not like it's not like those planes are bad but it's like well I thought I was going on a private jet you know so this is silly analogy sorry it's off the top of my head but the, the point is that uh there's a there's a very much like a pessimistic tone in those books so we, we preached through Haggai a few years ago, and one of the refrains in Haggai is like, are you, are you guys going to get to work? Like, the temple of the Lord is, in, is desolate, it's in ruins, are we going to do something about that? So it's not really surprising that we find Daniel, now I think we're going to spend a bit of time in Daniel 9, so do turn there with me, Daniel reflecting on this promise around the time that Israel are returning to Jerusalem. And, and Daniel chapter 9 begins with Daniel saying, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So it, it begins in verse 2 with him sat there reading the scriptures thinking, so there was, there was going to be this period and then we were going to be restored. So kind of what's going on? And it, and it turns to him then pleading with God and petitioning with God and asking him to restore the people. And there's some interesting things in his prayer. So if you look at verse 7, for instance. So, Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all of the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. So Daniel was going much, much wider than just the Jews who are in Babylon. So it seems that he is seeing Jeremiah's prophecy as only something small, a beginning fulfillment, and he's thinking much broader about the fact that, okay, well, yeah, we might be returning to the land, but hey, what about all the other tribes who are scattered far away uh, who have uh, been unfaithful to God? And then again in verse uh, 11, he says, can someone read verse 11 for us?
Thank you, Mike. So two things we're seeing there again. Um, all Israel does not just mean the tribe of Judah. It means all Israel. And the eschatology of the law of Moses, again, coming out there. Exactly what you said would happen has happened. We've reached that point. Uh, and I think there's another, there's another reference to Israel, I think. It's not super important, um, I suppose. But, uh, oh, oh, actually, yeah, there is one more in verse 20. Can someone just read verse 20? There we go. So just one more reference. You've got three references to Israel uh, in there. Okay, so before we kind of jump to the, the main section of this uh, chapter, remind, remember the context. We have him reading about the 70 years in Jeremiah and him saying, there's, there's got to be more than what's going on at the moment. Like, Lord, what is happening with your people? Please turn, please restore us, all of Israel, everyone both near and far, those in Jerusalem, those outside of it, those who don't know where, we don't know where they are, please restore us. And then the angel comes to him and, and tells him how these things are gonna play out. So I'm just gonna read, um, okay, so this is one of those areas where I'm, whenever someone has to reach for another translation to prove their point, uh, always get suspicious. Okay, I'm gonna, so I do this very, very carefully. This is a very, very difficult to translate passage, Daniel 9, verse 24 to 25. Most of the time, if you're reading, say, Matthew or Exodus or whatever, and you read the NIV and the ESV, you will notice that the ESV basically says the same thing as the NIV, just a bit more wordy. In this section, Every translation that I've, look, I've, I've looked at, the CSB, the ESV, the NIV, the KJV, the NASB, and, and so on, all disagree on major points of interpretation. So basically, over the last, well, certainly all of today, but over the last few years, uh, I have read basically every scholarly article there is on this passage, and the, the resounding voice is the NASB is the best translation that accounts for both the Aramaic and the Greek. So I'm not just going, hey, I, I'm just going to this translation because I like the way it says it. I'm going with how most, you know, most scholars are saying this is the one that you should use. So I'm just going to read uh, th this prophecy of what's called the 70 weeks from the NASB, which is a very literal translation generally. So uh, it says this. 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and uh, for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end for sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, there will be seven and 62 weeks. It will be built again with a plaza and a moat, even in times of distress. Then, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even till a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one which makes desolate. Now you probably all heard that and thought, simple, got that all, easy. Now, now, I was just to say, if we were going to spend a whole evening in this passage, we, we definitely could, but we're not going to, so I'm going to keep this quite brief. Um, the 70 weeks, this is, just, this is using like a day as a year. So 70 weeks of years is kind of, the, is kind of the way that it's worded. So we're talking about a period of 490 years. It begins with a decree to restore Jerusalem, and it ends with the coming of Messiah the Prince. Okay. We did this in last year's deep dive when we looked at the theology of the Gospels. So this might ring a bell. But basically, if you look at the decree to, to rebuild Jerusalem and the timing of, of Jesus' ministry beginning in 29 AD, what you find is that's a period of 490 years. Which is pretty cool. No, sorry, that, sorry that's, not, that's not true. That's a period of 483 years. 
Okay? Jesus' ministry lasts for three and a half years. What is one of the last things that Jesus does in his ministry? It was preached about on Sunday in Odium. He sits down at the table and he makes a new covenant and he establishes it with his people. Three and a half years after that, Peter is sent to Cornelius, the first Gentile convert, and from that point on, the Gentile mission begins. So we have this reference to, so the Messiah is going to come, the Messiah is going to be cut off and have nothing. Uh, this Messiah is going to make a firm covenant. In the middle of this week, so three and a half years into his coming, he's going to put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. Um, it doesn't say what's going to happen in the other half, so we kind of have to work that out. But the, the, this prophecy is about the restoration of Israel, and it ends, this period ends with the apostles going out to the Gentiles, I think is, you know, we can kind of fill in the gaps. But it's simply, oh, and we actually have a little, there we go, a little thing there. Oh, and this is also to say that it's unlikely that the seven weeks and the 62 weeks are supposed to be split up. It's, it's like when Abraham Lincoln said four score and seven years ago. It's, it's just a Hebraic way of kind of talking about one period of time. But all of these things, I mean, there is, there is literally like a book on every single point of interpretation when it comes to Daniel 9 and 70 weeks. So I, I'm condensing a lot of stuff down. We can talk about this in another time, talk about it afterwards. It's just to make a point that God is saying to Israel, hey, there is a period of time, it's going to be a long period of time, through which um, some things are going to happen. Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt, but this is going to be a time of distress. But this time period ends with restoration, with the Messiah coming, who's going to make the covenant, right? So it's, it's just to make the point that uh, Israel's restoration is almost guaranteed in, uh, by this prophecy now. These things are being laid out. Now, I, I, I say this next question with fear and trepidation because I, I, I really doubt it does. Does that make sense? Any questions to ask off the back of that? So I'm assuming that does make sense? No. <laughs> it's just so complicated, I don't know what to ask. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Let, let, me, let me try one more time at, at summarizing. I'll do this really, really quickly. So Daniel says, hey, Lord, when are you going to restore Israel? And the angel comes and he says, well, there's going to be a period of 490 years. Towards the end of it, a Messiah is going to come and he's going to be cut off. He's going to make a covenant. There you go. So all we know is that at the end of that period, the restoration begins. This, this period exists for the restoration. And this period ends with a Messiah coming who is going to be cut off, who's going to make a covenant with his people, so on and so forth. So, I, so what I'm not saying is that this, this prophecy specifically talks about what that restoration looks like. It just tells you, gives you a timeline of when it's going to happen which is why in the period of the, new, in the Gospels, uh, there are so many people who are eagerly anticipating the arrival of the Messiah and so many people who are claiming to be the Messiah because Jews of the period were reading Daniel 9 and going, hey, it must be any day now. Make sense? Okay. Let's, let's move on. We can always go back to that if we need to. I, I just wanted to put it in there because I think it's an important place to, to look at a little bit. Okay. So, who is going to be restored? Now, this is a really important question because, as I say, we should not just think that when they come out of Babylon, that's it, job done. That is not Israel restored. So, could we look at Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34? Uh, if, if we just uh, read the Bible in our own time on this one, I, I think we're going to read a number of passages now. So, let's just, let's just get to Jeremiah 31. And I'll give everyone time to read it, and then just, let's just answer that question, who is being restored in this prophecy? Yes, so, yeah, so the problem we have there is when we're talking about Israel, we could be talking about the whole body, or we could be talking about the kingdom of. Uh, I think it's more likely that in 33 it's talking about the whole, no, the whole body, the whole 12 tribes. 
rather than just the northern kingdom. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's more helpful in places where they refer to the northern kingdom as simply Ephraim, because then we know who we're, know who we're talking about. But, uh, and what were some of the things, features we noticed about this prophecy, about this restoration? Okay, did anyone dip into Ezekiel, or did we stay in Jeremiah? We did? Okay, so what happens in Ezekiel then? Yes. Yeah, a stick of wood. I, lo- I love the, the story of the two sticks. It's funny, I mean, I'd, you, you do have to feel sorry for Ezekiel sometimes for some of the like, actions that God makes him do to symbolize stuff. This is one of the more pain-free ones. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when the, when, the Lord, when the Lord comes from Son of Man, I was it going to be this time. Take a stick. Oh, I can do that one. Um, but yes, take the two sticks. One stick is uh, Judah. One stick is Ephraim. So who's Ephraim? By the way, have you ever noticed this before? Uh, belonging to... Uh, well, the NIV says Joseph, but the, the, if you go to a more literal translation of the ESV, it'll say the son of Joseph. And you bring these two things together, and there you have the restoration. Have you ever noticed that Mary, we know full well, is a descendant in the tribe of Judah? She lives in the hill, in the hill countries of Judah. And Jesus is the son of Joseph. So in him you have Judah and the son of Joseph coming together. Cool little tidbit. Anyway... Um, yeah, join them into one stick. And I didn't, get, I didn't include the whole of the passage, but if we just skim through it quickly in Ezekiel 37. Um, so in verse 18, when your people ask you, you know, what do you mean by this? This is what you're to say. The sovereign Lord says, I'm going to take the stick of Joseph, which is in Ephraim's hand, and of the Israelite tribes associated with him, and join it to Judah's stick. I will make them into a single stick of wood, and they will become one in my hand. Um, in verse 21, I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them all around and bring them back to their own land. I'll make them one nation in the land. So this is, a, again, this is not just like, hey, Judah's going to be restored. The restoration that has been promised is for all the tribes to come back again to be God's people. So who's being restored? It's all Israel that's being restored. Okay. Let's, let's jump to some other passages which say similar things, but there's a little twist on them. So let's do the same thing. Read both. They're, these ones are very short. So read both and then just jump straight into some chatting with your teams. Um, teams? Tables? Yes. So I think it's funny that um, we have a much more defined line of what we mean by the boundaries of Israel. So, so how often have we heard people talk about the Bible as though in the Old Testament, um, God had a people, like a, like a genetic people, like, a, a, like a, a, an ethnic group, and in the New Testament, he only has people by faith. Um, and the, the problem is that such a view doesn't make sense from Exodus onwards, even to this point. So in Exodus, if you read Exodus 12, for instance, God gives the commandment for a Passover, and then they start to leave Egypt, and it says, and many other peoples also came with them as they left. And yet we don't talk about the Exodus of Israel and some of the Gentiles. We talk about the Exodus of Israel. In the same passage, just before that bit, it says, anyone in the house of Israel can share the Passover if a foreigner is uncircumcised, they may not share it, but if a foreigner is circumcised, they can share in the Passover. The meaning, therefore, is the circumcised foreigner is a member of Israel. So it was never just like, oh, this is an ethnic thing and we've got these Gentiles on the side. If you bind yourself to the people, you are part of Israel. So when you look at this uh, passage, let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Because that's never been a thing. And that should never have been a thing. And the people who... So, for instance, um, the second temple, the, the, the temple that Jesus is in. So, we've got the Holy of Holies, the holy place, the outer court, and then you have the court of the... Court of the Gentiles. And there's a sign on the court of the Gentiles. 
as you go into the main court that says any Gentile who transgresses this line will be killed. That is not described in the law. That is nowhere described in the law. In fact, in the law, it talks about Gentiles coming into the temple. So they have put markers there that are non-biblical. And Isaiah is one of these places where it challenges such markers. The foreigner who comes in is part of Israel. And if you look at verse 8, 56 verse 8, Sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers the exiles from Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. So, the point here is that the restoration of Israel not just happens to, but by design includes group it, groups much bigger than just what they might consider Israel. The restoration of Israel includes loads of Gentiles coming in. Yeah? So like when they left Exodus, it's like, hey, a whole lot of Gentiles are coming in with us and they're now part of us. And the same thing's going to happen when God does the second Exodus, like Jeremiah prophesied. See? So this okay, so, the, so the, the point I'm just making is the restoration of Israel is a much bigger concept than people of a particular ethnic group being gathered together somewhere. And I think that's a really important thing we have to grasp when we're dealing with these things. And again, I'm only going back to this because it's so frequently quoted when we talk about this thing. When we talk about something like the establishment of the nation of Israel in 1948, it, it's, we may think it's a good thing politically. We may think it was a wise thing for the United Nations to do. I'm not making a statement on it. I'm just saying, can we see it through the lens of biblical prophecy? And the answer is no. There is nothing that talks about something like that. If, however, hundreds of people who were believers in the Lord had been gathered together and people from multiple tribes had come together and, had, and that nation had become kind of a, a nation bound to the Lord, then we might have more of a ground for saying, yes, something significant is going on there. But the fact that one, a group of people from one of the tribes of Israel all came together in one parcel of land just has no significance. That then This is not what the prophets are describing. There's going to be hundreds of Gentiles and people of all the tribes gathered in together. I know I'm banging that drum a bit, but as I say, it's only because it's so commonly kind of written about. You, you go to a Christian bookshop and there'll be tons of books on it. Um, okay, anything else from those passages? Okay, so the root of Jesse is um, David. It's a kind of a symbolic way of talking about David. So David, so it's the branch from Jesse. Um, David was uh, Jesse's son. So he is the, the shoot that comes up from the stump of Jesse. So it's just talking about the Davidic Messiah, but that's at the very beginning. And You'll notice that next time, when we talk about the new creation and resurrection, we're going to be hovering around the same passages. And as I say, this, these three sessions are very much related, because when we talk about the kingdom of God, when we talk about the resurrection, of the restoration of Israel, and when we talk about the new creation, we're really talking about kind of three sides of the same diamond. So, um, yeah. Uh, could we just spend a bit more time in chapter 11, actually? We moved on a bit too quick from that one. So what's going to happen when the, the, Jute of, the root of Jesse, not the Jute of Resi, uh, when the root of Jesse stands as a banner, what's going to happen, according to verse 10? Yeah, nations rally to him. And then looking at verse 11, the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hanath, and from the islands of the Mediterranean. All the exiles coming back and all the nations coming in as well. He raises a banner for the nations. He gathers the exiles of Israel, assembles the scattered people of Judah. So it's the same thing as chapter 56. The, uh, those who are not of Israelite descent, if you like, being gathered in is not just an accident. It's part of the design. Okay, so does, does that help in terms of seeing a picture of what we're talking about when we talk about God is going to restore his people? Do we see what that looks like a bit more now, get a bit more of a fuller view? Yeah? Okay. Great. 
Um, do we want a break? We've only got 20 minutes left. Yeah, okay, well, ha let's have a, just a couple of minutes. Um, if there's anything we need to get our heads around, use it as a time to get your heads around it before we jump back in with a very quick last section um, in a second. Okay, can we jump back to Ezekiel 37? I've got a little video for us. It's, um, it's, it's very American, but I feel like it sets the, sets the scene quite well. So, Ezekiel 37, here we go. Let's, let's watch this little, this little vid. There we go. I have the prophecy of the dry bones, the valley of dry bones. It's probably quite a well-known prophecy. It's some weird and wacky ways it's been interpreted and preached in the past. I remember hearing one preacher say, you've got to prophesy to the dry bones of your bank account. I have bad news for Joyce Meyer when she says that because verse 11 says, then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone and we are cut off. So this is a picture of Israel in the grave. This is a picture of Israel dead among the nations. And so God says, this is what the sovereign Lord says, my people, I'm going to open your graves and, and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. Why am I going here before we finish? Well, because uh, this is exactly where we're going to pick up on next time. That the picture that the prophets use for the restoration of Israel is resurrection from the dead. So in Isaiah 25, it says, your grave shall open and you shall live again. Death is swallowed up in victory, so on and so forth. And I've put a load of passages there, Hosea 13, Isaiah 25, Isaiah 26, Daniel 12, where Israel's restoration is described in terms of resurrection from the dead. I'm going to do the same thing that we've done every time, which is not always go to how the New Testament talks about these things, because we are going to get there. We are going to get to a New Testament understanding of all these things later. But to just make the point that for an Old Testament reader of these things, they were never quite sure if they were supposed to be reading these prophecies as literal prophecies that God is going to raise people from the dead, because it's clearly not literal in Ezekiel 37, or if they are just talking about the national restoration of Israel. And I think the point is, N.T. Wright puts this brilliantly in this quote, 
The meanings of bodily resurrection for dead humans and national restoration for exiled slash suffering Israel are so closely intertwined that it does not matter that we cannot always tell which is meant. Or even if a distinction is possible, that is part of the point. So, to be with God is to be alive. And Israel is in a sense dead. And God is going to make them in a sense alive. But he's going to do that by taking the things that are not in a sense dead, but are dead, and making them not in a sense alive, but alive. So, that, I hope that kind of whets your appetite, because next time we are going to look at resurrection, new creation, as a, as a way that the prophets talk about this, this uh, restoration of Israel. Now, as I say, when we're talking about the kingdom of God, we saw last time that what that means is the period where the Gentiles had dominance over God's people is coming to an end and God is coming to reign. This time we've looked at how Israel were dead and God has promised that they're going to be restored. And next time we're going to look at how God is bringing a new creation where tyrants and things are no more and there is new life. And these things are all, as I say, three sides of one diamond. And so these are not kind of disconnected things. Um, so actually, I say that's the end. It would be a really natural end. I'd love it to be the end. But I, I, we just have to dip very, very quickly because we can't leave this, which is that um, one of the great things we have is even though the Bible ends in 400 BC and the Old Testament ends in 400 BC and it picks up again later, we have lots of non-biblical Jews who are reading and reflecting on the scriptures and so have their kind of things to say, which is great for us because it kind of, we can interpret with um, people in the past. But so th- these, this is, there's a chapter on, on each of these people in, in this book. So I'm gonna recommend it again. The Idea of Israel in Second Temple Judaism by Jason Staples. It is a brilliant book, very, very good. And uh, I've just kind of summarized the, the, the chapters here. But Josephus makes this really interesting point where he says that uh, the exile, the scattering among the nations, this was not a good thing. This was a curse. This was a punishment. But through it, God is, is achieving something which is very good because now God's people are everywhere like seeds that have been planted over the, over the fields. So when God does decide to bring the restoration, they're all ready to have dominion over the whole earth, which is the promise that he gave to Abraham. So that's how he was reading this. Um, Philo, who's a a Jew in Alexandria, uh, just before the New Testament, he talks about what it means for Israel to be restored, and he basically says it's it's not necessary for them to actually return to the land because the land couldn't hold all the people that are in Israel. When God talks about the, the restoration of Israel, he means the Israelization of the whole world. The whole world is going to become uh, kind of the, the place for God's uh, kingdom. And uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, I don't know if you know much about the Dead Sea Scrolls, but the Dead Sea Scrolls are all written by a group of people called the, the Qumran community. And they see themselves as like the, um, the vanguard, the, the, the kind of little deposit of the, the restored Israel. And so lots of their writings are about how the fact that we exist means that God is planning to do this big restoration soon. And this is just to make the point that basically, uh, well, as I wrote on the end of the handout, all Jewish writers in the intertestamental period believe this restoration is yet to come and will affect all Israel, not just their part of it. Which is really interesting, I think. Um, so, yeah. I just thought that was, that was worth uh, making that point, really, that this, this restoration is a very exciting thing that's yet to come for them. Okay, let's do a little recap, and then we can do some questions, if anyone's got questions. So, we looked at how Israel died. The people of God were scattered. They needed a restoration to fulfill their calling, to be priests to the nations. Oh, no, we've completely forgot to... Ah, oh, now I'm remembering something I forgot to put in the slideshow. Um, uh, I'm sure you can work it out. Basically, the, yeah, God made Israel for a purpose. They failed in their purpose. God was going to restore them so that they could continue their purpose of uh, yeah, restoring all creation. Silly me. God promised that all Israel will be restored, not just Judah, but even the Gentiles who join themselves to God. Uh, the restoration is not necessarily geographic. We only touched on this at the end there. But it doesn't necessarily have to be a return to a, a parcel of land, but a return to God and a return of God to them. 
That's a, that's a big feature in the book of Zechariah. God is going to return to you. So, um, as I said at the beginning, there were hundreds of places we could have gone. I'm sorry that we only did the few that we did, but I hope that was a big enough picture and not too much information to take in. Uh, questions, comments, queries, conundrums? Clarifications? Oh, sorry. Can I just interrupt and say, I, I'm not saying it's not a good thing. It could well be a good thing. So, for instance, I think... Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. It, it, I think a good analogy is like, so the Kurds, for instance, um, don't have their own land. They are scattered amongst a, a few nations in the Middle East. I think it would be a good thing for the Kurds to have some sovereignty of land restored to them. But I think that there's absolutely nothing significant about that happening in terms of geopolitics. So in the same way, I'm saying, I think it's really good that the Jewish people were, were given a nation, especially what they suffered in the 20th century, but it's completely irrelevant to biblical prophecy. So I, I just want to make that really clear because the, you know charges of anti-Semitism are so. Uh, I do have some good news for you in that regard. They did. They they did in in the first century. All the the, the you know, in fact, sorry, this is definitely jumping ahead to a few sessions time. No, it's just to say that you think about what Josephus said there. You know, all all these people scattered around, ready for when the restoration comes. What does Paul do in the Book of Acts? Goes to this synagogue. Jesus is the Messiah. Whole load of them return uh, turn to God goes to the synagogue, Jesus the Messiah. So within like 100 years, we have hundreds of these communities of people, Jews and Gentiles together, all calling on the God of Israel. You know, now we have 2.8 billion of them around the globe. So it's, it's kind of incredible that the book of Acts, you know, Josephus wrote before the book of Acts was written. He didn't know what was going on, but yeah. Yes, yes. Um, this is a, well, it's kind of a digression, but it's a digression that comes right back to that. I, I was talking to someone a few months ago um, about um, the issue of kind of um, homosexuality and homosexual marriage and stuff like this, and, and they, were, they were a kind of a Christian who was saying that, um, that, that they're fine with it and that the, the passages they used to support it was Acts 15, where the Jerusalem Council meet and they say, hey, these Gentiles, they've received the Spirit of God. This is something new, unexpected. God seems to be working amongst them, though, so who are we to stop it? And he was basically saying that, you know, I, I've got, I got uh, gay friends who are Christians and I'm just doing an Acts 15. I'm just saying, hey, look, God's at work in them. Who am I to stop it? And that issue aside, I'm not trying to address that now, the problem with using Acts 15 in that kind of way is that when you look at the Council of Jerusalem and they're thinking about how Gentiles are being used by the Spirit of God, the one thing that they do is they go to the Scriptures and say, hey, this was the plan all along. This is what Amos 9 says is going to happen. God is going to restore Israel, and when he does that, he's going to bring loads of Gentiles in. Hey, look, this is what's going on right now, guys. So, as I say, I'm not trying to deal with that issue now, but just simply to say that in the book of Acts, they are seeing what's going on with all these kind of Gentiles coming in, people being restored as the plan, not a, not a new thing or a diversion from the plan. It's the going back to the scriptures and going, oh, hang on a second, this is what it says. Yeah. Thank you, Johnny. 
Okay. Anyone else? Yes. Okay, so so the word that he uses is there are appointed seventy weeks of uh, of um, seventy weeks of sevens, and if you go to uh, Leviticus nineteen, seven sorry sevens of sevens is is what it yeah seventy sevens is what the Hebrew uh, Aramaic literally says seventy sevens. Um, so a, a, a translation that makes it very readable, like NLT, NIV, would do it as 70 weeks of years, because what it's doing is it's taking, in, Le- in Leviticus, it talks about the Jubilee calendar, and it talks about how there's 49 years, which is seven lots of seven, so seven sevens, and then after that you have the Jubilee year. And it's taking that language, and rather than talking about seven sevens, 70 sevens. So it's not 49 years, but 490 years. Does that, does that make sense? So, that, so the more confusing thing is, does it talk about a period of seven weeks and then something happens and then there's a period of, so sorry, 49 years and then something happens and then there's a 434 year period or is it one period of 483 years and there's debates on that one. It basically depends on which manuscript tradition you go with which is far too an in-depth conversation to have at five to nine. <laughs> okay, anything else? Yeah. Yeah. So this is actually important. If you notice, sorry, I realize this is getting a bit technical and some people are thinking, come on, I want to go to bed. Let me make this really quick. Um, it doesn't actually say, and this is, this is really important, the destruction of the temple is prophesied in Daniel 9, but it doesn't happen as part of the 490-year period. So that's not actually something that happens in the 70 weeks, if you like. It's an addendum, something that happens as a result of it. So then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, that, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Um, and, it's come, and its end will come to an end uh, with a flood. There will be desolations that are determined or are decreed. So uh, I, I don't think it's necessary to say that the temple's destruction happens in that period, but desolations that are decreed are. So in Matthew 23, for instance, you have Jesus going into Jerusalem, and he proclaims a desolation on the temple. He, dis- he prophesies the tem- temple's destruction in Matthew 24, and then... Lo and behold, on the back of the Messiah coming and uh, being cut off and all those kind of things, 40 years later, the temple's destroyed. So I think there's a connection between the temple's destruction and what happens in the, seven, in the, in the 70 weeks, but not a kind of a this happens in. Does that make sense? I think. There's a really good article on this by a guy called Peter Gentry, um, which I can send you away if you're interested, but he's a original language specialist. Yes, so that's NIV, is it? Yeah. So the NIV is the only translation that has the he who sets up the covenant and he will set up as a desolation as the same person because there's no he for the setting up the desolation in the Aramaic. That's, that's being supplied by the NIV. Um, as I say, it, every translation on this passage takes it differently. Yes. Yes. Uh, um, no, it's 901. I'm not going to go into a discussion on the Antichrist now. <laughs> We'll do that another time. But um, just to say, there's a, there's a fairly common view which sees this as talking about an Antichrist figure, which is completely, well, it's a, it's a modern novelty and is unfounded in the text. But that's what the NIV is doing it 
But anyway, we shall finish there, finally. <laughs> uh, as, as I say, feel free to always ask me stuff afterwards or, uh, yeah. Maybe we should have like a short Q&A session one time, like instead of uh, planning anything, just come and talk about some eschatology stuff. But anyway, uh, let me pray quickly. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We do thank you that um, whenever death comes, we know that restoration is always around the corner. We, we thank you that you're a, a God who loves to give life. And so, Lord, we just pray that we would live in the life of Christ today, tonight, and this week, and in the rest of our lives. In your name, amen. Thank you for coming, guys. We are not doing deep dive in August, by the way. So, see you in September. <laughs>